Good morning. Let's pray. God, as we again step into your word, as we look uh, into the book of Hebrews to try and understand what it is that you are saying to us, what you are speaking to us through this, God, I pray that um, we would sense your presence, that your Holy Spirit would be active in the words that are spoken, in the hearts that receive, that as we go through this uh, dense, full book, all these Old Testament references, these sort of lists of information, uh, that in the midst of that, we would, we would sense the hugeness of you, the breadth and the depth of, of who you are, Jesus. And then also we would have something small, a seed to take home that would plant in our hearts, that would grow. Be with us as we walk through this. In your name, amen. So last week we entered into a series on the book of Hebrews, and we didn't make it past the first three verses. Uh, and the message that I hope that you took home as we walked through that, as we left from there, was that we have a God who speaks, and he speaks in many ways, but now he speaks to us through Jesus. Jesus is the lens by which we view and understand God. He is the voice by which we hear God. John calls him the Word. And so as we go through his Word, we are listening to Jesus. We want to have ears that are open to what God wants to tell us through his Son. We want to allow God to become greater in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives as we go through this. And, and Hebrews is going to spend its time comparing Jesus, putting Jesus up against the other heroes in Scripture, the other tools uh, in our religion, the other spiritual things, and conclude that Jesus is greater, immeasurably greater than all of these things. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to continue in chapter 1, and we're going to talk about angels. And, and it's interesting because angels are an interesting thing because they show up in, in culture, in popular culture, uh, a lot. People who aren't uh, a Christian, who don't have any kind of meaningful relationship with Jesus, still often talk about angels. They talk about their guardian angels and these sorts of things. People who aren't connected to the church, who don't know their Bibles very well, um, something about angels still appeals to us in general, still draws us in or occupies our imaginations uh, in a unique way. And you can think of the number of TV shows and movies that use angels in popular culture, that feature angels. Uh, uh, shows like back in the 90s, it was touched by an angel or teen angel or these sorts of things. Or do you remember those Philadelphia cream cheese commercials that used to run? Angels kind of show up all over uh, in our pop culture. Christmas movies are full of angels, right? It's a wonderful life is the story of this angel that comes to this man. Or a Christmas carol, the angels appearing or these sort of spiritual beings appearing to Ebenezer screws in some way, Scrooge. Um, and, and honestly, for me, uh, maybe because there is this, this oversaturation or overexcited imagination about angels in, in our culture, and maybe because of a lack of clarity that I've felt about exactly what angels are and what their role is in our lives, I've tended towards 
uh, the other side of the spectrum. I don't think about angels very often. It's not something that kind of I'm processing on a day-to-day -day basis, and maybe some of you can identify with that. But this then is a very good opportunity for me to take a breath and to, and to step into a space where I don't naturally go and, and to look at what Scripture does have to say about angels and how they relate to Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be working through uh, this passage, we're going to be covering uh, the rest of the first chapter in Hebrews today. And what I want to start by doing is just reading through uh, the scripture that we're going to be covering kind of in one chunk. So we've got the big picture in our heads as we move forward. This is what it says. I'm going to start Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. So, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Then I'll read the first verse of chapter 2 here. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. I want to start off by asking you a question. Do you ever come across labels that feel unnecessary? Like a McDonald's coffee cup is a famous one that reads, Caution, hot liquid. Like, we should all know this that there's hot liquid in a coffee cup. Or, or, or I, was, I was actually preparing the sermon, and I noticed at my desk one of these silica gel packs that sometimes comes with electronics, and it says, do not eat on the package. And you go, well, of course, everybody knows not to eat these things. But what then, you wonder, I wonder, is the story behind this. Why, what happened in the past that this is now a necessary thing to put on a coffee cup or in a silica gel packet? And there are signs like this all over the place that sort of point to things that we feel should be just supremely obvious, but apparently someone had to point it out. Uh, I, I found a list of these signs online titled, Signs That Definitely Have a Story Behind Them. And I want to share some of the more ridiculous ones with you. These just send your imagination uh, spinning as to what could be the reason behind these signs. What poor store employee had to hung this up and what, hang this up and what their day was the day before they had to do this. So, so here are the signs. Uh, first, in light of recent events, no Oreos will be allowed in the library. It's highly specific. Chips Ahoy, fine, apparently. But you will not bring Oreos into the library. 
Next, uh, this I think represents a very dark day at a hotel continental breakfast. You cannot put gravy in the waffle makers. <laughs> a surprising number of these center around food, uh, but the next two are focused on vegetables. If anybody uh, can, give, can give me context for this or why this happens, to, uh, stop me after the service and let me know because I do not understand what these signs could possibly be referring to. The first says, caution, tomatoes. You can't be too careful around tomatoes, I guess. Second is a sign that was very important to be clearly communicated. It's got a picture, and then in at least four languages, do not make cucumber. Another one that really makes you wonder what the day would have been like the, before. The sign says, due to moose, auto door temporarily disabled. And another animal-related one. This might be my personal favorite. Again, just trying to imagine the reason this would have to go up. Do not feed hallucinogens to the alligators. Finally, I've got two more. Sometimes messages are universal enough that no words are needed. An image is enough. First, we have a sign with a small child being carried away by an eagle of some kind. That would ruin the hike. And second, simply an out-of-control, wheelchair-bound person heading downhill towards a hungry alligator. There are many more of these yet, but I had to stop myself somewhere. The point is this, if I can draw a point from all of this. It's not at all unusual that in life we come across things that seem too specific or too pointed to not have some kind of a story behind it. And that's true in life in general, but it's actually also true in Scripture. It's important that we never forget that while Scripture is for us, the church here and now, you know, it's God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness and equipping us for good works. It's still also true that these books were written to specific people in a specific time and context with specific issues that they were facing. And so the answers that we find in these letters, the arguments that are addressed in these letters, are, are talking to specific issues that the churches they were writing to we're facing. So it's a good habit for us to get into. As we read our Bibles and we come across passages that seem a little bit strange or a little bit out of place or a little bit confusing, to say, what was going on in this church or this community or in the minds of the people who were reading this that it was necessary to address this specific topic? And that's a little bit how I feel about this section on angels in Hebrews. In, in this, he starts off the book with this sweeping statement on the supremacy of of Christ, and then steps back and, say, and says, okay, first things first, we're going to jump into sort of an extended discussion on the superiority of Jesus uh, to angels. He comes off this incredibly high point, this list of seven truths that we covered last week about Jesus' identity as heir of all things, as creator, as radiator of God's glory, as the perfect representation of God's character, as sustainer and purifier and savior and victorious ruler— and then it feels like he takes a step back and he says, now let's look at how Jesus is better than angels. And we go, isn't it obvious? Why does the point even need to be made? But the author seems to think that it's urgent that this would be addressed. He kicks off his letter with it. And so in order to understand why angels were so significant to this church in the book of Hebrews, we need to take just a little bit of time um, first to review what the Bible has to say about angelic beings, their nature and their role. Because angels have been hugely distorted for us, I think, by pop culture. We have this idea in our heads of maybe 
pudgy naked babies sort of floating around, or, or, or perhaps these very soft and gentle uh, feminine figures, almost weak. We, we think of feathery halos, or feathery wings and floating halos. I hope not feathery halos. They are the ultimate in being inoffensive and, and, and gentle. And yet, over and over again in Scripture, when angels show up, they initially cause terror and trauma. Uh, Isaiah is brought into the throne room and sees these heavenly beings with three pairs of wings, fiery and glowing, and he is gripped with terror. The angels that show up in the Christmas story, in fact, throughout Scripture, constantly have to reassure people. The first thing out of their mouth is, don't be afraid. I know this is startling, but don't be afraid. It's okay. I've got good news. Uh, Daniel gives a terrifying account of the angels. He says this, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like a topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So you read something like that. And I think you can begin to understand why angels showing up needed to tell the ones they met not to be afraid. They are powerful, mysterious beings. Angels are mentioned hundreds of times in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. They are created beings. They are made by God. But they were present before us at the creation of humanity. They exist in vast, countless numbers. They can take on human or other forms. They are individuals with various responsibilities. Some of them are even named, like Michael and Gabriel. They are often invisible and become visible to specific people in specific times. Their name means messenger, but they can also act. Second King tells a story of an angel striking down 185,000 men. Acts tells stories of angels rescuing Christians, believers from prison. All in all, though, there are four main roles that angels seem to have in Scripture. First, they worship and praise God. Psalm 103.20 says, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. And the images of heaven that we have, like Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the seraphim calling to one another. He's saying these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. One of the primary purposes of angels, just as with all creation, is to worship their creator. Second, they communicate God's message to man. Acts tells us, and so does this book that we're in right now, Hebrews, tells us later that God used the angels uh, as mediators to give the law, the scriptures, to the Israelites. Angels reveal the future to Daniel and to John. They show up around the coming of Jesus in the beginning of the Gospels, delivering messages to Mary and to Joseph and to Elizabeth and to the shepherds and others. Third, they minister to believers. They help us. Psalm 91 says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest your foot strike against a stone. 
And the concept of, of guardian angels specifically doesn't exist in Scripture exactly, but there are several passages that show angels helping and protecting and assisting believers. They delivered Christians from prison. They rejoice at the conversion of sinners. They are present with the church, the Bible tells us. And fourth, they will be God's agents in the end times. Revelation tells us that angels are going to be involved in the end of all things. They are opening seals. They are blowing trumpets. They pour out bowls of wrath. They execute judgment on Satan and his servants in those end times. So this is just a brief sort of skim over, an overview of the nature of angels. But as we begin to develop a, a biblical understanding of angels, it becomes more and more clear maybe how the author of Hebrews felt this was an important place to start in speaking about the greatness or the greaterness, the supremacy of Christ. It's also worth noting that the Jewish people during the intertestamental period, that's the period between the Old and the New Testament, in that time before Jesus came, they were hugely focused on angels. It's out of this time, those last few generations before Jesus, that the concept of individual guardian angels really comes into being. There was a belief, in fact, that each person had their own set of angels, a good angel and a fallen angel. And in fact, there was a rabbi from around this time who said, every blade of grass has its own angel. They were very, very focused on the presence of angels around us. Uh, and there were Jewish religious leaders who became convinced that angels were going to be key players in their liberation from the Roman Empire. Angels were going to be a key part of their being rescued from their oppressors. People in this time, the Jewish people had angels on their mind. They thought about and they cared about angels deeply. So as the author addresses a church and a group of, of former Jews uh, who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, he's very intentional about tying what he says back into the Old Testament scriptures. He references many different passages because even if there was some skepticism or, or some uncertainty about how this all fit together, what good a Jew could argue with the Torah or the Psalms. And so he uses these things as the building blocks for his argument. And he quotes from several passages to make five different points about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And we're going to walk through those. The first point is this. Jesus has a greater name than the angels. It says this in Hebrews. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So in Jewish thought, names were hugely important. They carried deep, deep meaning. They showed the essential character and nature of a person and their rank and their, and their dignity. And Jesus is identified as God's son. The author references two Old Testament quotes, Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14. And these were well-known uh, messianic passages, passages referring to a coming Messiah. The angel Gabriel's announcement mirrors these passages. It echoes it as well, saying that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus is the Son. Angels, on the other hand, are messengers. They hold important roles, but to confuse them with the Son of God, the heir of all things, would be an unimaginable dishonor. 
First, a greater name. Second, a greater honor. And again, it says in Hebrews, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And that's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And of course, throughout Scripture, we see that being made true. The angels honor Christ with worship. What jumps to mind when I think about angels worshiping Jesus is the Christmas story, is the angels appearing to the shepherds, the the heavenly host singing glory to God in the highest. But angels worship Jesus in eternity, past, as well as future. We get a beautiful picture of this in John's Revelation. It says this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and elders and voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Angels don't worship other angels. Uh, other than fallen angels, but we don't have time to get into that today. Angels worship God himself. Third point is this. Jesus has a greater status than the angels. God is in control and he is sovereign. The author looks to Psalm 104. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servant flames of fire. And then on to Psalm 45. So these These passages in Psalms, they're called Messianic Psalms sometimes. They're referring to the Messiah. They're fascinating things because this psalm was originally written about a Hebrew king. But as Jewish prophets read these words later, and certainly as Christians read these words, they look at this and they go, this was partially fulfilled on earth, but this was always really speaking about. This always pointed to Jesus all along. Even though it was originally written for someone else, People understood that this was pointing towards a greater king and a greater Messiah. So Psalm 45 says this, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So the throne, the scepter, the anointing give a picture of, of, a, of an almighty ruler. His throne, his rule will never end. His scepter, his authority is going to be executed in righteousness. And that's a righteousness he accomplished by dying on the cross for our sins and resurrecting. His anointing refers to a heavenly joy, a heavenly celebration in Jesus as the king of kings. Angels may be fearsome. They may take on many forms and many sizes and many shapes. They may have great power, but they are still Christ's servants. Jesus is eternally on the throne, holding authority, anointed in heaven's joy. Fourth, Jesus has a greater existence than the angels. For the fourth argument for Christ's greatness, the author goes to Psalm 102. And that psalm, it's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm... Of, of an afflicted man, a broken man, who begins in lament. It's called a psalm of lament. But throughout the psalm, this author of the psalm is slowly overtaken with an awareness and a celebration of God's power and might and existence above all these other things that he's experiencing. It just lifts and lifts and lifts through the entire psalm. And towards the end, 
uh, is where the author of Hebrews quotes from. It says this, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Angels are created beings. They're an entirely different category from Christ, who has always existed. To this small church, this was an incredibly important reminder, a great assurance. The world was changing. Their world, in fact, was falling apart in some ways. But Christ is the same, outside of time, eternal and unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And last, a greater role. The clinching argument is simply this. Christ is a ruler. Angels are servants. There's a lot of overlap between these different points. I can imagine they're starting to blur together a little bit in your minds, but they're all just slightly different angles towards the same core idea. And to bring this idea home, the author goes to the most quoted line of Old Testament scripture that shows up in the New Testament. This line shows up 14 times across New Testament writings. Uh, Jesus himself quotes this at his trial. To which of the angels, the author of Hebrews says, to which of the angels did God ever say, then here's that line, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer to that question, of course, uh, is barely needed. God never said that to an angel. No angel has received that honor. God is on the throne. God is in control. Jesus rules over all things. In all these things, the writer in Hebrews has built a powerful argument. Jesus has a greater name. He is son. He has a greater honor. The angels worship him. He has a greater status. He rules the universe. He has a greater existence. He's eternal and unchangeable and a greater role. He is sovereign king. As we head towards our close, uh, maybe the most important bit of cultural context for this church, this early church, is this. To answer the question, why does the author spend his first impression, his first main argument clarifying Jesus' role with the angels? It's likely because some of the Jewish believers to whom he was writing were in danger of compromising the superiority of Jesus and, and slipping back in to Judaism. So what was happening is Christians were being attacked from two sides. First, the Roman emperor, uh, the Roman Empire, led by Nero, was, was persecuting the Christians, and that persecution was becoming more and more intense by the day. And then secondly, they were being pressured and attacked by their Jewish neighbors. Uh, by those in the synagogue, and it would have been incredibly tempting to compromise. You see, if they had just agreed that Jesus was an angel, perhaps even the greatest of all angels, but not God, well, then likely they would be able to be accepted back into the synagogue. They could escape this horrible pressure from both sides. And truly, we can see why that would have been appealing. It didn't require a denial of Christ, only a bit of a shift in how we think of him. It would have allowed them to save face because it doesn't deny that they had a real experience with a spiritual being. I wonder if you're making the connection that I'm heading towards. Angels are incredibly popular in our world, even in the non-Christian world, because often in the world's imagination, in the way that we tend to think of them, they come across as sort of inoffensive. Angels are friendly helpers. They're message bringers. They're guardians. Uh, with no real power or authority over us. They don't tell us to change. They just want us to be looked after. And isn't that the pressure in this world to turn Jesus into an angel? 
into a palatable, acceptable servant who just loves us and wants us to be happy and comfortable? Isn't there a push from the world around us to say, you can keep your religion, you can keep believing what you want about Jesus as long as you don't actually treat him like God. As long as you don't say, I am following this person and his teachings, come hell or high water. I am actually radically changing my life to match the pattern set before me by God himself. If we were to simply affirm that Jesus is a great guy, he's one of the best to walk the earth, that he was a teacher without match, that his ethics were second to no one, that his life was an example of heroism, that, he, that his death was an example of sacrificial love, well, that's all okay. Pressure's off. The tension begins when we say he was all of those things, but he matters because he was God come to earth. He wasn't just a kind man. He is greater than any ruler, any money, any celebrity, any friendship. The trouble begins when we start to understand what Jesus meant when he calls us in Luke to hate our fathers and mothers and wives and children and brothers and sisters in our own life in order to be his disciple. Now, does God want us to hate our families? Jesus loved his own family. He loved the whole world. He commands us to love each other. So what he's saying here is so much deeper than just hate your own families. He's saying, if you truly want to follow me, nothing else in your life can be as important. I need you to be first. I need to be first, says Jesus. If you truly believe I am God, if you truly want to be my disciple, everything else comes second, including your own life. As he winds down his argument on angels, the pastor reminds us in Hebrews 2, verse 1, that we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. In early Christianity, one of the most common symbols for the church was a ship. It showed up all over the place. And that image was borrowed from uh, the story in the Gospels of the 12 disciples heading across uh, the Sea of Galilee when a storm comes up and they are being tossed around in the ocean, in the sea, uh, and they're terrified until, you know how the story goes, Jesus comes walking across the water in the night. And it doesn't, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine this little house church, 15 to 20 people, probably situated around Rome, with this looming shadow of the persecution of Nero, with the winds uh, of Judaism threatening to blow them back from where they came as a small boat tossed around in a stormy sea, hanging on for dear life, unanchored, drifting away. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, Jesus who is higher than the angels, Jesus who is king, needs to be our anchor. Without a firm grasp on Jesus and who he is, we risk drifting, don't we? Very often in faith, the greatest danger isn't that we're going to suddenly be tricked or pulled away in some other direction. It's not a dramatic hurdle or barrier or persecution that we're up against often. It's simply drifting, isn't it? There isn't any friction. There isn't a sudden choice or an intentional crossing of a barrier. It's just an almost imperceptible drift. And when you're out at sea and you don't have a landmark, you wouldn't ever even know until suddenly you're somewhere you didn't think you wanted to be. C.S. Lewis asks the question, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? 
the aim of the author in Hebrews as he begins this book is to allow us to grab hold of the anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and firm while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Jesus, the one who is higher than the angels, is the one who keeps us from drifting. Let us anchor ourselves in him. Amen? I'm going to close here with a benediction uh, from Hebrews, from Hebrews chapter 13. This is my prayer for us as we go. May the God of peace, who through the eternal blood of the covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.